Welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions, Episode 3. Today's topic, technology. Today, we're going to ask Lee to talk with us about some of the stuff that's on her mind, and especially to talk with us some about what she's working on uh, with regards to tech and to emergent tech. I wanted to start by saying congratulations on finishing up Black Mirror Reflections, the podcast that actually got me right back into podcasts. So it was fabulous. And I wanted to say congratulations. Thank you so much. I have to say it was really, really, really one of the best rando projects that I picked up in my life. It was quite a salve for my COVID pandemic isolation. I'm actually really sad that it's over, but thank you both for like saving me. And I'm really excited about this. Well, so do you think that there'll be more episodes of Black Mirror coming out? So there may be a reason to do more in the future? Yeah, I hope that there's more episodes in the future. I think right now that's really up in the air. There appears to be a lot of confusion about who actually even owns Black Mirror. I'm sure you both know, we've all joked about this before, that Charlie Brooker said, I'm not doing a new season in 2020 because 2020 is a season of Black Mirror. So I don't know that so far 2021 is not also a season of Black Mirror. So who knows when we're going to get one. But yeah, I will say that if we ever get another season, I definitely will resuscitate. I was thinking a lot about the Archangel episode that we recorded together. And one of the things that I was talking to you about in that discussion was how frustrating it is to be somebody like me who feels like there's all this emergent tech that's constantly coming up and I really don't have a firm understanding about it, but yet it's so philosophically important for me to have that. And uh, especially as we talked about in the episode, cause I'm a parent and my kids are already so much more deeply immersed in this stuff than I am. And so I was just wondering, I mean, how do you philosophically approach the kind of ethical concern that you have about people not knowing what is going on in the world around them with technology? Oh man, that's such a big question. And it's a good question because I do actually think that you're not unusual in not, I mean, understanding the implications of the tech that you're using and the tech behind the tech that you're using, which is the much more interesting stuff. One of the questions in philosophy and technology is the big question of what's called the digital divide, right? The divide between people who have access to information and communication technologies and people who don't. And that is an important thing to keep in the forefront. And it's one of the things that might have been my kind of entree into being really interested in technology. But I realized that I was able to quench that interest because I'm on the right side of the digital divide. It's very important to me to try to encourage people that I know and my students to be more conscientious about the fact that you are the ones that have this technology in your hands, that have access to it and can understand it. But it's shaping everyone's lives right now. It's shaping the world that we live in politically, socially, economically. And if you're not keeping up with those things and you're not really fairly assessing the actual world that we live in now, that's what worries me a lot is that these things are progressing at a lightning speed. You know, it used to be the case that major advances in technology happen once every 10 years. They're happening once every couple of months now. And when I say major advances in technology, I'm talking about advances with impacts 
on the level of the printing press and the, and the light bulb. I was thinking about that. And I know that you more than anyone else that I talk to philosophically is on top of these changes that are happening faster and faster and have bigger and bigger impacts. But it seems to me it's impossible to stay on top of all of that stuff, unless it's a full-time job just to be monitoring it. So what is your philosophical approach to how to think about this stuff, even though you may not be able to know everything and understand everything that's being developed? I don't think I know everything that's being developed, first of all. So let's start with the big picture. Most things that are happening in emergent technology are in one way or another connected to advances in artificial intelligence. I also want to just like sidebar here. I hate the word artificial intelligence. Why? I hate it it because it implies that it's not real. So I think of the antonym to artificial to be real. So this is like fake intelligence or something like that. And I always say to my students, you know, when you see a plane flying in the sky, you don't say that is artificial aviation, right? It's, it's not, you know, it's machine flying as opposed to a bird flying. This is real intelligence. So a lot of times I'll talk about machine intelligence, machine learning, but okay, end of sidebar. All right. So, <laughs> but back to my point in, in the big picture, most of the advances in current emerging technologies, so all of them information technologies, policing and surveillance technologies, cryptocurrency, biomedical technologies are all in some way related to or backed by or enabled by advances in artificial intelligence. And so I think that just a basic rudimentary understanding of what an algorithm is, what artificial intelligence is, what's the difference between narrow AI and neural network AI. These are not things that are beyond the scope of understanding for anybody who just has a Facebook account, right? So I picked Facebook because Facebook is getting older and older, as, as is yeah, evidenced by that. As, as are we. <laughs> totally true. But I think that that's really where we need to start. I don't think the actual questions are any different than the kinds of philosophical questions that you're asking anyway. You're asking questions about how do I know what is true? How do I know what is good? How do I know what is beautiful? How does my own mind work? How do other people's minds work? How should we treat one another? What are the obligations and responsibilities of the state? What are the obligations and responsibility of the citizens? All of those are questions that we're asking anyway. But I don't think that people properly understand that all of those questions are all the way down, saturated with technology now. I like the idea that every single question that we ask in philosophy are are questions that we have to be asking of technology. That makes perfect sense. But the one thing that sort of jumped out to me when you were talking about uh, artificial intelligence, the sidebar, and, (laughs) and not liking that it's called artificial intelligence. And I think that's right. I think we just embrace the fact that this is actually intelligence that we're dealing with here. But then I wonder... How are we supposed to think of intelligence then? What exactly do we mean? We don't call it artificial intelligence. We call it, what do you want to call it? Machine intelligence? Yeah. 
Yeah. So what does that mean exactly when we call it machine intelligence? See, now that's the million dollar question. And I actually really like to use this word intelligence to talk about evolution, among other things, but also our relationship to the natural world and to non-human animals and to objects. I don't want to put too much valuative weight on intelligence. I think it's just a descriptive term. But what I take you to be asking is, well, what does it describe? And I think that what intelligence describes is the ability to accomplish tasks in different kinds of domains. You know, one of the things that sets human intelligences apart from, for example, natural objects or manufactured objects or non-human animals is that we have what's called general intelligence, right? The ability to transfer learning in one domain of our activity to another domain of our activity. So we see that already in machine intelligence, which is not something that as far as we know, we see anywhere else. I mean, it's possible that we see it in the natural world, but I think that that's a more complicated case to make because then I think you have to impart personality or agency to either nature as a whole or to parts of nature. And that's, you know, I mean, which I don't, I don't have any problem. Can you give me an example of general intelligence where you have some kind of machine learning that's able to transfer intelligence from one area to another area? I'm assuming you mean something like I learn how to cook and I'm able to transfer those skills to something else like doing my math homework or is that sort of what you mean? Yeah, broadly speaking, that is what I mean. Okay, so this is a big debate, and maybe this will be some helpful terms to define. So what we have currently right now in terms of machine intelligence is what people call narrow AI, mostly is narrow AI, which is machine learning systems that have been trained to do rather specific tasks in a rather limited domain. Now, what has happened in the last 10 years or so is that we've seen a kind of explosion of different kinds of structural system, machine learning structural systems, neural network systems, recursive learning systems, transformer systems, et cetera, which have amplified the capacities of artificial intelligence. This is where the argument is. When are we going to get to the point where we reach AGI, artificial general intelligence? So a machine intelligence that has roughly equivalent intelligence capacities to the human mind. That's what Skynet. That is actually ASI, artificial superintelligence, which would, would be a machine learning system that has capacities that far exceed what a human intelligence, either individually or collectively, could achieve. Hypothetically, when a GI emerges or we create it, I mean, this is where it gets kind of tricky. When we have an intelligence that itself is able to analyze its own processes and the processes that produce that intelligence, it would be able to improve upon them and then create a successor, which does the same, which learns about its own intelligence and the processes that produce that intelligence, and then create a successor that is even more intelligent than it, that has even greater capacities or can function in more domains or at a greater level of efficiency or whatever. So AI is where we are now. AGI is what people worry about in real artificial intelligence communities. 
a SI is what you see in the movies. So you don't think we're actually at the AGI stage yet? So that gets back to the question that you asked me. Can we see something like transfer knowledge in machine learning systems right now? And the, the short answer is yes, we can. Now, that's not necessarily the same thing as saying that we can see the operations of an intelligence that is roughly equivalent to human general intelligence. But right now, especially with the most recent, and by most recent, I mean in the last two or three years, advancements in AI, we can see that we have these systems that are able to learn without supervision, but also the ability to transfer one domain of intelligence to another domain. And that is the first glimpse of what I think sci-fi writers and just normal people find worrisome or, you know, either frightening or exciting, depending on your disposition towards the singularity. So, for example, GPT-3, which is a natural language processing system, it's just an amazing system. It's able to now not only deal with language, but take the things that it learns in processing language and apply it to images. That's transfer learning. So it is a learning that is learning how to learn. I guess I would call that intelligence. It absolutely is an intelligence, but it's an intelligence even at the narrow AI level. I mean, like you, you couldn't do what Netflix does for you or what TikTok does. You know, these algorithms are more sophisticated than our flimsy minds are, but they're only good at that, right? Like it's a very limited skill set. It requires massive amounts of data and levels of pattern recognition that we're just simply, we will never be capable of. But it's an intelligent operation that's happening just in a very limited domain, a very narrow domain. I'm sorry, now I feel like, like I can tell by my uh, volume and speed that y'all are getting me really super excited again. So. <laughs> that's that's what we want. That's, we that's want what we're here again. for. This is the whole purpose of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very curious about the way that you're defining general intelligence here. And this is something that I've struggled to understand as we talk about how we would be able to recognize an AGI, right? So is it fair to say that if we define this primarily in terms of an ability to engage in something like analogical applications of knowledge, you've heard a few things. One is this analogy or applying to different domains of discourse. One has to do with something like self-reflection, where I'm reflecting on my own processes of learning. One has the ability to learn unsupervised. Are these the same thing? I think all of those things that you just said are mm. qualities of an advanced intelligence, right? Okay. So if we think about the difference between the kind of intelligent operations of a virus and the intelligent operations of a Labrador and the intelligent operations of a Shannon Musset, you know, they're the, clearly they're, the most intelligent operation system there is. Uh, <laughs> so one way that we could describe the difference between the virus, the Labrador and Shannon is just in terms of the quantity of domains in which that intelligence is effective, right? Mm -hmm. The other way would be to say, where are the hard limits of the domains in which that intelligence could be effective? It's very hard to determine the hard limits of our intelligence. You know, how many domains can we go with? I mean, mm -hmm. like when you think about all of the domains in which our intelligence is effective and efficiently operative, there are a lot of them. 
And we can generalize what we learn in one domain to another domain. So if I understand correctly, one of the issues that you brought up is that as these technologies change, our understanding of ourselves changes too, or perhaps ought to change. It should Um, change. It should change, yeah. But a lot of times when we're talking about the idea of general intelligence, we seem to believe, or and, and maybe this is an outdated assumption, but we seem to believe that there's some narrow subset of skills that we have, or some narrow subset of cognitive capacities that we have, which enables this wide range of applications. So like in the case, for example, of, of IQ tests, right? IQ tests are dependent on this assumption, and they claim that it was backed up with science, that certain features of certain kinds of cognitive skills, like the ability to recognize patterns, the ability to engage in analogical reasoning, the ability to use language in certain ways, wasn't just indicative of one's intelligence with respect to those tasks, but as you're saying, was generalizable beyond that. So that there must be some one thing that general intelligence was. Am I understanding the set of assumptions correctly here or the the sort of the operative thinking? I mean, I don't actually know the history of IQ tests. As you described it, I would also assume that the designers of IQ tests had some general presumption about what general intelligence is or what the total set of capacities is. I don't think that is true. I think that general intelligence is a way that we describe our own intelligence because as far mm-hmm. as we know, we're the most intelligent life form. Yeah. I think that we're really, really, really terrible at seeing the ways in which there are intelligence operating in other life forms and in other machine systems that far exceed and maybe so far exceed that it's impossible for us to achieve any kind of efficiency in those other domains. And we say, oh, that's instinct. Or we describe it in some other way that's not intelligence. Yeah, um, like octopuses camouflaging, for example, right, was always one that blows me away, which seems to involve, you know, brain processing at a very high level where they're taking this massive set of visual information and literally changing their body after their brain processes that information. That blows me away. And that seems like a form of intelligence to me. It seems like it's the kind of intelligence that we can barely even conceptualize as intelligence. And I'm wondering, would we be able to identify intelligences that machines have that aren't like the kinds of things that we are intelligent about? Or is this this sort of- No, no, I I think that's, I think that's the right question. And no, I don't think that we will be able to. And I think that is where the current trajectory of Mm -hmm. computer science research, people who are actually trying to create more and more sophisticated machine learning systems and the corporate interests directing these systems at specific tasks that have wealth producing outputs. That's where that project needs to talk to philosophers. It needs to talk to people whose job it is to imagine, (laughs) to come up with thought experiments, right? And say, what would it Mm -hmm. look like if there was a domain of intelligence that we couldn't even recognize as intelligence? This does recall the earlier conversation we had about freedom, where we sort of ended with, shouldn't we be asking questions about what might freedom look like in some broadly construed terms in other non-human presentations. And it's the same kind of question. How would I recognize any conception of freedom in terms of choice and responsibility is operating in some kind of machine learning or some artificial intelligence domain? And you're saying, yeah, that's the question, but it's even bigger because it's about how would we recognize it as thinking as calculating, as deliberating, even if it's not anything like the way that we do those sorts of things. Yeah. And I mean, people are so worried about this emergence of a 
artificial general intelligence or an artificial super intelligence and being run over by these robot overlords, I am far more concerned about us inadvertently enslaving an intelligent machine yeah. because we just don't see it as intelligent. And let me tell you, there is a long human history of us doing that. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. So you already feel sorry for the machines that we're going to inadvertently enslave because we don't understand that they are intelligent in some way. I do. I would bet my life that in the next 15 years, the question of what people loosely call robot rights, machine personhood, is going to have to be legislated, if not decided by whatever churches and moral Do you think we're already there? No, I don't. Not yet. We don't have to worry about feeling bad about Netflix being our little servants and algorithmically telling us what we should watch tonight. I, I don't feel I don't feel bad for the for the Netflix algorithms just yet, but I do really worry that we are so lazy about taking this question seriously that we have all kinds of opportunities right now to start training ourselves to be open to the idea that we might need to recognize personhood in machines very, very soon. I mean, we're still trying to figure out if we can recognize personhood in Labradors. Can I ask you, maybe just changing it to a broader question, given some of the things that you've said, and I ask this in complete naivete, Because you're talking about personhood and non-human animals, and I don't think it's as hard to philosophically and ethically open up people's minds to seeing personhood in non-human animals, for example. I don't know if that's a feature of our projection of our humanity onto them. I don't know if it's because they're little furry or scaly or feathery creatures that we can look at and hold and relate to as far as an organic thing. It's not so hard for us to see personality in these non-human animals. And therefore you can really open up these ethical questions with them. So my question, my naive question is, can we think of artificial intelligence as having personality? And does it have personality in the way that we would recognize it as personality? I think a hundred percent. Yes. Example A, Alexa. And I know that a couple of a couple of Christmases ago, I sent an Alexa <laughs> to Shannon, who hates robots. I sent an Alexa to Shannon's house, so I know you have an Alexa as well. I have two but, now. Uh, 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 and they're talking you, to each other. They're plotting against me. They're plotting against okay? me. But in all seriousness, you only have to have an Alexa in your house for about a month before you start referring to her as her, before you start laughing at things that it says. You know, we ask Alexa to turn off our living room every night before we go to bed in my house. Alexa, can you turn off the living room? And she's like, okay. And I'm like, thanks, Alexa. And then I'm like, why does she never say you're welcome? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but again, so naive question number two, what if I were to say, but that's not personality. Like when my dog does something uh, surprising, I don't think that it's completely and totally programmed to do that. I think that there is some degree of, dare I say, spontaneity in how the dog responds. And Alexa is programmed to say certain things in response to certain questions. I mean, is Alexa developing new ways? Is she getting better ideas of how to respond? Will she one day say you're welcome to you? 
I think that the question here is how much are you willing to loosen up your understanding of what it means to be programmed? Because you also are programmed to respond in certain ways. You know, and your dog is programmed to respond in certain ways to certain stimuli. And this is maybe my biggest complaint about the way that people talk about machine intelligence. I somehow knew I was going to be the one that was going to evoke (laughs) your biggest beef with people and how they talk about (laughs) artificial intelligence. I won. But in all seriousness, one of my biggest complaints is that people talk about machine intelligence as if it's just like not your regular calculator that you get in sixth grade, but the super calculator that you get when you take trigonometry. It's just a smarter, more sophisticated machine, but that the basic operations of it are no different than your toaster. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've really got to make an effort to understand that the operations of Alexa, most people could not understand without a PhD. And, you know, and if we got to the operations of what's now called neural network AI or black box AI, we're really talking about things that your mind can't understand. So it seems a bit presumptuous to to say like, well, isn't she just programmed? They're just programmed to do that as if they're just fancy toasters. This is not the machines that we're talking about now. I'm wondering, is the criterion for programmability that it's capable of being understood by us? I could accept that the kind of thinking that Alexa is doing is algorithmic in some way, depends upon its interaction with Shannon and Shannon's family through parameters that were programmed by people using techniques that I don't understand, and that they couldn't then go back and say, okay, you know, this happened because X, Y, and Z. But I would still say that it's completely reducible to the way in which that code has been functioning. Now, I'm also, by the way, willing to say that that's probably true of us. Well, okay, yeah, because that Um, was going to be my answer, is that you also think (laughs) algorithmically, right? Correct, yeah, yeah. And It's just that your algorithms are, most of the time, our algorithms are pretty sloppy, and sometimes they're, you know, beautiful. I mean, I think it's a good question. I think that maybe you skipped a step there. There's another step between Alexa and us, which are machine intelligence programs that also learn. So they're not, in that sense, just executing an algorithm, although there are sort of layers and layers and layers of algorithms all the way down in the systems that they're executing. But that, I just would say, is also true of us. All the way down to DNA is true of us. Okay. Okay. So now question number three, can they feel, will they ever have what we might consider to be emotions? I mean, I know we are going to have to, in the next 15 years, consider the personhood and the status of artificial intelligence as persons, but would we have to take into consideration something like an emotional life or feelings if we do that? Okay, so you're not going to like this answer. I'm going to oh. go ahead and tell you. Feelings, emotions, we talk about them with about the level of scientific rigor that we talk about fairies. You know. Oh, that- well, I'm down with that. <laughs> you're, you're, uh, you're, on, you're, this, yeah, this, you're speaking my language now. Fairies, feelings. Fairy folk. And feelings. The cold, unmythological person. 
I don't. I don't. You guys know I'm a feeling. <laughs> I'm a feeling. <laughs> I have feelings. But we I, don't know what we're talking about when we talk. We about don't feelings. know what we're talking I, about. I totally about agree with you. I totally agree. We with don't you. know. Like yeah. we, you know, it's yeah. especially hilarious in philosophy, right? Because we're like qualia, the what it's <laughs> like to be. You know, I mean, yeah. the thing I know not what. Right. And that, and that's what you're asking me. You're asking me like, oh, but will they have this thing that we have? Well, what is that thing? Oh, it's this thing. I know not what it's fair. It's true. But right? to be like, fair, I mean, I think Heidegger, I don't know why we keep coming back to this guy. We then, don't. Y'all do. All right, that's true. I don't know why Ammon and just I'm told me to bring up Heidegger. I, said, I was going to talk about Nietzsche. So this is on you. I'm the one talking about the question concerning technology. And I haven't mentioned Heidegger. And I, I didn't go there just for the record. Don't, but, don't. But I mean, so with something like moods, whatever we are talking about when we're talking about feelings and emotions and moods, and I totally grant you it's unscientific, it's better spoken of in poetry and art, I think, but regardless, being in a mood still totally colors all of your processing. Whatever it is that you are doing as an intelligence, it colors all of that. It affects the algorithm all the way down. And so it's not just a sort of additive component of being human and thinking as a human. It's completely formative. Yeah. I mean, if I could jump in on that, because I completely agree. And I think that you could even argue, like, I'm willing to grant that a lot of our affective life is probably because we don't understand our own algorithms. But you talked about empathy and intuition and obligation. And I, I think that that might be where a lot of empathy, intuition, and obligation enters in. So even if the first person perspective is sort of in a Nietzschean sense, an illusion, and just this like weird side effect of whatever operations are going on with us, if that's where our ethical and affective and emotional life is located, why would I A, want to, and B, could I analogize there to whatever machine intelligence will be like? No, I think that it is, as a heuristic, really helpful way to talk about, you know, what we're seeing emerge in machine intelligences and what we might want to see or might not want to see. I just think, I mean, exactly as Ammon said, and really Shannon said as well, I just think that in the cold light of day, we have to realize that when we talk about things like feelings and moods and the what it's like to be qualia, et cetera, that those are really placeholders for things that we don't fully understand about our own experience of human consciousness. And just like we used to talk about ethers or we used to talk about hysteria and now we have scientific explanations. I don't, I don't yeah. like this. I don't I'm, like how I'm, you're... Yeah, I don't. I, think I don't it's like that. reductionistic in ways that I'm. Worried <laughs> Do y'all yeah. feel bad? I feel, <laughs> I, my feelings are really hurt. I'm feeling really sad, and now my mood is totally altered about this entire conversation. I mean, so, if you know, to a certain degree, it sounds to me like you're espousing a view that's kind of close to something like limited materialism. So, the, this would be the view that we move from the assumption that these are all placeholders to, and therefore, the best description would be one that is entirely in tune with our best scientific understanding yeah. and it's visible in the, exact, in the exact same way that the sciences are. But I don't think that that necessarily follows. It might be that even though we don't have full conceptual grasp of the mechanisms here, experientially and aesthetically, we actually have a much better understanding of these than I want to say than so Paul and Patricia Churchill are sort of the biggest limited materialists. And my biggest objection to them is that they have a bad aesthetics, right? Like they're, they're using science that we know is going to be outdated in order to understand phenomena that 
frankly, Shakespeare and, and Sophocles and Cosine <laughs> understood better. So yeah. let me just say that I am entirely open to that possibility. I'm just quite simply saying that these are things that we don't know. I think that there are lots of ways to talk about them. I think that we talk about them through and in the arts in mm. different ways that we talk about in and through philosophy that we do in and through science in and through politics, etc. I'm just saying that what I thought that we started with was this question that you were asking me, are machines going to have feelings? And I just want to say, A, I don't know, because B, I don't know what feelings are. And C, I don't know that that's really all that important question. You know, that's not the most important question. Oh, but me. it seems that, like that it would makes... be important to me. Because <laughs> I... if they had feelings like sadness and anger and frustration and joy that would seem to me to be at the forefront of considering whether or not they were persons let me ask you this question then shannon because i presume that you think despite the mockery that you guys have made of me in the last few minutes i assume that you both believe that i have feelings like yes, sadness absolutely. and anger and joy etc right but you know that or you think that because either I've told you that or because I am exhibiting certain behaviors or patterns that you recognize in our cultural and social context that serve as reference for those phenomena, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this is a serious question. Would it make any difference if machine intelligence becomes capable of giving you those same signs? saying, I feel sad and exhibiting it in ways that are convincing to you in your interactions with machine intelligences, which are not going to be exactly the same as your interaction with things that have faces and bodies, right? But in your interactions with machine mm -hmm. intelligences, would it make any difference? Because it seems to me that the decision there is entirely on you. Are you going to grant that? Are you about that, to tell yeah. me that you're Are robot? you going to grant that regard? <laughs> I mean, I, this is hilarious. Are you going to confess this to me now? It's hilarious that you say I'm that because it turns out that, hold on, I'm, I'm going to step out and let the real Lee come back in now and see <laughs> that all this time you thought you were talking to. Yeah. You know, but, you know, you get what I'm saying, right? Is that, yes. is that at the end of the day, that is not a question about does the machine intelligence have feelings? That's a question about are you willing to regard something else as having these qualities of personhood, which are important to you, which may be different for other people, but for you, it seems to be feelings are really important. Are you willing to extend to a machine the regard that you extend to other things that have feelings, given that you don't know if it has feelings or not, but it's interacting with you in the same way that things that have feelings do? That, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's helpful. It, it sort of seems like one thing you're saying then is that the question isn't just a question about empathy, but it's a question about recognition. Is that fair? Like, under what conditions would I be able to recognize a machine as a center of ethical or social or political value? Right. I mean, I think that what we've been dancing around is this yeah. question of both moral agency and moral patience. And I think those are both hugely important questions and will become even more important every year that passes for the next 10 years and probably less. You said, is that a question of empathy or is that a question of recognition? I don't know that I see the difference between those two things, presuming, of course, that you are a moral agent who, when you recognize another being that has moral patience, extend empathy to it. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that empathy can be the grounds for recognition. I think recognition is potentially a broader phenomenon because it doesn't, okay. doesn't necessarily, but it might just be how we're using the terms here, right? Mm -hmm. um, which is fine. Can I ask, so you sort of already had added the caveat that when listeners come back in a year to this, it, the technology will already have changed. But can you identify like right now, in March of 2021, what would be like two or three current emergent places where you think this question of recognition or empathy or whatever we want to call it is really pressing? Okay, I thought you were going to ask it. I know that wasn't the question that Lee wanted. I, I, I think the question that Lee wanted was what emergent technologies <laughs> right now are what we should be thinking about and talking about and taking right. an ethical concern okay. about. So here, let me let me try to re-ask it then. Okay, I'll ask a different question then. I apologize. No, it's okay. I mean, yeah. this is unfair for me to tell you what questions you can ask and not ask. Oh no, but I was ready for that question. Uh, okay, <laughs> I was I was like, okay, Ammon, yes, ask it. We got it. So what do you think right now in March 5th, 2021 are the emergent technologies that are the most pressing for philosophers to be thinking about? Okay, I love this question. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> this is literally my favorite thing to talk about is sort of what should we be paying attention to and what should we be looking at? I think that the number one emergent technology to be concerned about at present is CRISPR Case 9 technology, what they call the gene editing scissors. The reason is because this technology, we cannot even imagine, much less predict the consequences of this technology. So for listeners, CRISPR-Cas9 technology allows us to make changes in the genetic structure of human beings at the germ level. So not at the somatic level, but at the germ level, which means genetic changes that are heritable, that will be passed down over generations. So we literally, for the first time in human history, have the power to alter the nature of our species which of course, if our past record is any indication, means we will almost certainly hasten our end as a species. <laughs> right, right. right. So, so that is something, especially given that there's no international and very little right. even national mm -hmm. oversight or regulation of this technology. Like literally people can do this in their garage. So How widespread is this technology? So, I mean, I don't know what you mean by widespread. I mean, is it that it's just a few laboratories and high-tech places across the no, world? No, no, Or is it like people are literally doing it in their garages? People are literally doing it in their garages. I mean, I don't think there's a lot of, I think most people when they go to their garages are not playing around with CRISPR. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not doing I mean, that. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, it's but, that easy, but it's yeah. And I mean, you know, we have limited time here, but I will just refer everyone to the really great documentary miniseries on Netflix called Unnatural Selection. It's about this. And in the very first episode, you see this dude literally in his garage who's trying to alter his dogs to make them glow in the dark. So, CRISPR, number one thing to worry about. Second thing I think that we need to worry about is the rapid advances in facial recognition technology combined with the ubiquity of surveillance technologies. So surveillance technologies are already everywhere. I mean, not only in the form of just cameras, but also in the form of cookies 
and other kind of data trails that we literally leave everywhere. But facial recognition technology is something that has advanced very quickly, and it is built on neural network AI, and it is the cause of the phenomenon that we saw about 18 months ago that we now call deep fakes. So I think that this is maybe something that everybody was like, ooh, this is really scary. They should make a Black Mirror episode about that. But the truth is, this is actually something that could radically change our ability to trust our eyes and ears in politics and in social interactions. And it already has. I've seen those Tom Cruise TikToks. It's yeah. indistinguishable from Tom Cruise. It looks just like him and it acts just like mm-hmm. him. And if somebody didn't say it, it was a fake, I would never in a million years think that it was. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I mean, absolutely true. I think the third thing, if I can just have three, is I think that we really have to worry about, again, the ubiquity of the uptake of predictive policing and sentencing algorithms. They have been demonstrated clearly to be prejudicial, to unfairly punish Black and brown communities, poor communities, et cetera. And they are being taken up with no oversight. Both the PredPol algorithms and the Compass algorithms are proprietary, so people can't even get in there and, and fix the problems that we know that there are, which you know is something that we really should, you know, there should be some politicians campaigning on exactly this platform, which is that algorithms should be transparent, especially ones that have effects on such a widespread of the population, like predictive policing algorithms, like search ranking algorithms, like sentencing algorithms, those sorts of things. Because, you know, we've got however many thousands of colleges and universities in this country. Every single one of them has a math department and a computer science department. You could outsource this data and it could be like, you know, everybody's senior project. How do you make these algorithms better? How do you make them less prejudiced? How do you make them fairer? How do you make them more just? But that's not what's happening. These are corporate products and they're being sold as corporate products. And in this case, it's costing people their lives and it's destroying communities. I mean, I'll, you know, there are other things that I think are super interesting and that we should be concerned about, but I'm not as concerned about, for example, what's been in the news this last year. How do we regulate and break up big social media? That's going to happen at some point anyway, right? Like that's just going to happen. That's, that's going to be a natural evolution. But these other things I think are going to sneak up on us and the damage that they will do will be irreversible and it will be done before we're paying attention. Yeah, we, we recently had, it was just last year, I think almost to the day that this company Banjo came into Utah, made national news. There's a great article in Vice about this and it's predictive policing. And they said that they would scrub all the information every 24 hours. I know, right? I'm sure but that it, right, it was, it was actually just sort of scanning for anomalies so that it wasn't following people, it was following events so that it could, and, and it was like, first of all, we didn't know in the state that this was going on. The attorney general's office just signed this company up university campuses, hospitals, everybody just signing up to give all of this real-time data in every way that they asked for it without any questions as to how they were processing it, what they were doing with it. And the only reason that they broke this relationship was because the owner of it, Damien Patton, 
was found to be a member of the KKK when he was 17. And then everyone's like pearl clutching and oh no, we can't have a racist be the one developing the technology that's going to be doing predictive policing. Yeah. And I want to say like, raise your hand if you're shocked to learn that the dude (laughs) who invented the algorithm for predictive policing was a former member of the KKK. It was, it was, it was just like... There, there it is, right in your face. You don't say. I know, shocking, shocking. Who to thunk it? Wow. So you guys, you've been really indulgent with me sort of rambling on about computers and I really appreciate it, but we are coming to the end of our episode and I'm in the hot seat. So that means you both get a chance to say what you agreed or disagreed with about what I was talking about today. So Ammon, let's go with you first. Okay. I am in complete agreement and frankly now very scared, although since I've talked to you before, I'm already scared about some of these current emergent phenomena that you're talking about. And you've gone much further to persuading me about the sort of ubiquity of, uh, or the- the, It's the ubiquity of the finite. I think that's what you're looking for. The ubiquity of the finite. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm completely persuaded about these emergent areas of concern that you're talking about. And in general, you've really persuaded me, not just on this, but also the Black Mirror podcast, that I should be much more worried about capitalism than technology on its own that AI is far less of a threat than AI in the hands of capital. I'm, I'm still a partisan of feelings. And I know that that's not, I, first of all, I know that's, un, I'm, I know I'm straw manning a little bit there. I know that you weren't saying that, but I, I still think that because we haven't fully understood what we're describing when we describe our own intelligence and personality, that we're misunderstanding the phenomenon that we're looking for uh, when we're talking about AGI. And I think actually, I think you and I agree about that, but I, I think we still got a lot more to talk about there. Yeah. Yeah, fair. Shannon? Lee, I just first of all want to thank you for your indulgence of my questions because I really do feel like I pull up my pillow and I'm like, ooh, I get to ask my questions of somebody that knows something that I don't understand. So thank you. I really do appreciate it. So (laughs) I guess you really got me thinking when you said the problem is laziness. You know, I always think that the problem is fear, that I have this irrational fear of that which I do not understand. But I think you're right. There's just sort of an overwhelming fatalism and laziness regarding, well, it's just going to happen. So just let it happen and it'll all work out in the end. And that's absolutely the wrong attitude to have. We have to be vigilant. We have to be educated and we have to stay on top of these things and we have to talk to each other and educate others about this. So I appreciate that. I think you're really right about that. I also, you know, I agree with Ammon, but since he already talked about our affective life, I won't talk about that. I actually didn't hear this as much in this conversation, which sort of surprised me, which I've heard you voice elsewhere, which is that you're a techno optimist, that you actually see a lot of potential for these kinds of emergent technologies. And I didn't really hear that so much. So it's not really a disagreement. It's more like, I want to hear what you think is good about this or what could possibly be good about all these things we're talking about. Can I say just quickly a I couple want of you optimistic to. things yeah. about yes. this? I, I, I agree. I also feel like this conversation has not been entirely characteristic of the way that I think about technology. I am extremely optimistic about emergent technologies, including the ones that I am also worried about. I think that one of the things that we need to really think about is the ways that technologies, social media technologies, the internet just in general has given us 
us philosophers, really interesting new ways to think about systems. One of the things that I've been saying, and I've really been kind of growing into this position over the last several years when I've been working a lot on this, is that the biggest thing standing in the way of human flourishing right now is our pathological attachment to thinking about ourselves as individuals and not understanding the powers that we have when we think about ourselves as systems. And we could see a lot of that in AI. We can already see it in social networks. We can already see it in many of the ways that the internet works. We can see really interesting things in the development of cryptocurrency. All of those things have problems, but they also have shown us real new possibilities. That's really exciting to me. I'm really excited about the way that the the advances in machine intelligence have given us new ways to think about how we think about thinking. (laughs) I think that we have a lot to learn about what we mean when we talk about thinking. And in particular in philosophy, I would like to see more people who say that they're doing philosophy of mind really take up these really interesting questions. On smaller scales, I'm actually excited about some of the things that we see, especially in biomedical technologies, anti-aging technologies. You know, they say that the first person to live to 150 years old has already been born. I mean, we're going to have to completely rethink what a life, a human life looks like. What's it going to look like when you're 60 years old and it's not time to retire? You're just halfway there. You're not even halfway there. So that's really exciting. I'm actually, sorry, Ammon, but I'm really excited about the art that AI is producing and the way that it is making creative possibilities much more accessible to many, many more people. You know, you just have to get on TikTok for a second or Instagram or any of these sort of media platforms to see that the people who are currently our students, the Zoomers, I, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but people often complain that they don't have the reading and writing skills, the language skills that generations prior to them have, but they can read and interpret images like nobody's business. And that is almost entirely because of this new technological world that they've embarked. So I'm excited about a lot of things. I also have my own robot collection, which, you know, growing by the day and it's, I find them all really adorable. You have a Roomba, right? Well, no, I'm talking about robot robots, not Roombas. Real robots. I mean, Roombas are. A, a, yeah, I you do, do have, have a Roomba. Roomba. My Roomba is named Fernando. I don't know what. Oh, okay. So you do. Everybody has. Them. Yeah. But yeah, I'm really excited about robotics. And so, yeah, there's lots of things to be excited about, a lot of things to look forward to. Yeah. I mean, if we are going to solve the vast inequalities that currently exist nationally and globally in wealth and opportunity, in access to justice, those solutions are going to be technological solutions. I was so on board. <laughs> you all, you almost had me. And then you had to do Emma's like, no, the solution is going to be a poem. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be poetic though. Yeah. <laughs> okay, listeners. Well, we appreciate you tuning in again to Hotel Bar Sessions. Just as a reminder, if you have anything you want to add to this conversation or ask about this conversation, You can find us on Facebook at Hotel Bar Sessions Podcast. We also have a Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. And make sure you go by and check out our website, hotelbarpodcast.com, where you can find notes to each of our episodes and some indications of what's coming up next on the podcast. So thank you so much, guys. It looks like we've got last call at the Hotel Bar here again. 
I really appreciate you. And, you know, I just want to tell you, I care about your feelings. Yeah, I care about your feelings. And thank you. It's been so generous to spend so much time here talking with us about this. I really had a fun conversation. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Ammon. And thanks to all of our listeners. We care very much about your feelings and your intelligence. (laughs) (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.